There are few things on earth that generate more conversation than wine. For many, the thirst for wine knowledge becomes an obsession, and it's hard to imagine that anyone has fully ingested all there is to know about the world's most revered beverage. We all know people who are passionate about sharing that knowledge and their opinions about wine. But we find an awful lot of the conversations about wine pretty hard to swallow. Welcome to Grape Encounters. Your host, David Wilson, his guests, and the rest of us on the team are here to show you a great time. How to have more fun with your wine. Where to enjoy wine the most. How to immerse yourself into a wine lifestyle that isn't simply about wine. So let's dive into this week's edition of Grape Encounters. Oh, you'll learn plenty, but hopefully it will be knowledge that you can really use. Not like that Latin class you took in high school. Here's your wine captain, David Wilson. I honestly can't remember the last time I packed my bags and took off across the country or across the oceans to go to a major wine event without bringing my trusty recording device, microphones, and all the stuff necessary to put together a segment or several segments of Grape Encounters Radio. But that's exactly what I did earlier this week. I packed my bags Monday and journeyed off to Washington, D.C. for an absolutely extraordinary event featuring wines from legendary Bordeaux. So just why did I leave all the technology behind? Well, it basically comes down to this. For a long time now, I've lamented the fact that as a broadcast journalist, anything that I do pertaining to wine seems to require me taking along recorders and all manner of electronic gadgetry to make sure that I can memorialize all of the things that I experienced during a world-class event. But this particular soiree, which took place at the Fairmont Hotel in Washington, D.C., was quite special, and I honestly felt that if I brought all my recording equipment, I might miss out on a good portion of a potentially unforgettable experience. So I decided that it might be better to recap that experience when I returned home, rather than to try to document it every inch of the way while juggling cheese plates and renowned Bordeaux blends as I immersed myself in the food and wine culture of our nation's capital. This event is just one of the topics that I'll be speaking about on this edition of Grape Encounters Radio. Today, I'm also going to be talking about pairing wines with the big game that's coming up in just about, what, two weeks? Today, I also want to weigh in on one of the most wine-centric holidays of them all, Valentine's Day, which of course occurs on the 14th of February. Needless to say, we've got lots to talk about on Grape Encounters today. But as I said, we'll let the journey begin on Monday when I hopped on a plane from San Luis Obispo, California, stopped over in Dallas, and then found my way to Reagan International Airport, where I settled in a few miles away in Georgetown for a couple of days to really enjoy one of the best wine experiences that I've had in quite a while. And I'm so glad I took the time to do it. The event is entitled Union des Grands Cru de Bordeaux. It's an event that is put on by the fraternal organization of the same name. The chateaus that participate in this event are among the very best of the best from the Bordeaux region of France and represent a cross-section of the sub-appellations within Bordeaux. If there's one thing that's certain about this event, it's that the wines that you'll taste there will certainly be world-class. 
Some of them may be a bit expensive, but the vast majority of them can be obtained at pretty reasonable prices. And I can tell you without any reservation that everything that I tasted at this event was purely delicious and a perfect expression of what fine Bordeaux wines are all about. Here's how Ronan Labordet, president of the Union of the Grand Cru de Bordeaux, describes his organization. He says, Above and beyond our PR promotional mission that takes members to foreign countries all year long, over the years, the Union des Grandes Cruz has become very much an ambassador of French culture, of which wine is an integral part held in the spirit of sharing and conviviality. The tastings we organize are much more than mere commercial operations. There's no doubt about it. Thanks to the privileged long-term links we've forged, we've been able to convey our message of quality around the world. The strength of our Grand Cruz resides in their history going back centuries, but updated from generation to generation. This continuity and constant calling into question of our methods enables us to progress unceasingly. We will therefore persevere in our commitment to surpass ourselves and to remain open to the world that is the hallmark of the Union de Grand Cru. Now, a little bit about the history. The foundation of the Union des Grands Cruz de Bordeaux were laid by a small group of estate owners during a trip to Japan in the early 70s. Go figure. With the aim of developing promotional initiatives around the world, it was soon followed by a number of other fine wine producers who also wanted to extend their reputation beyond their own borders. Now strengthened by its differences and its common value of sharing, their union now numbers 134 top estates from the most prestigious Bordeaux appellations. And bear in mind that we're talking about an area that literally has thousands of chateaus. The primary mission from Tokyo to New York, from Shanghai to London, and from Paris to Montreal was for the members of the union to pursue their primary objective in cooperation with distributors, brokers, and merchants to meet some 50,000 or so professionals and wine lovers each year around the world and present their latest vintages to them hosted by estate owners or the operational staff. Some 80 events take place each year in over a dozen countries as well as France. Of course, they include Germany, the UK, Belgium, Switzerland, Italy, the Netherlands, and Russia. North America, including the U.S. and Canada, and Asia, China, Japan, South Korea, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Singapore. The Union has often played a pioneering role in opening up these new markets, especially in Asia. Well, anyway, this particular event that I attended was hosted by our sponsor, Total Wine & More. Now, one of the things I find really fascinating and amusing is how people who are not as deeply into wine as perhaps you and I are, sometimes misunderstand the relationship between the wines that we love so much here in America, especially reds like Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot, versus the wines that come from Bordeaux. And you know, we know those wines as being Bordeaux wines, but aren't always told 
that is Bordeaux wines that consist of the very same favorites that we love so much here in the U.S. And so it was charming to me to hear some people comment that these Bordeaux wines reminded them a bit of Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot, when in fact what they were drinking was Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot. And I think it would do every aspiring wine enthusiast a lot of good to get to know the relationship between Bordeaux wines and the most popular wines here in the States a little bit better because they're not just distant cousins. They are also close brothers and sisters, and in some cases, fathers, mothers, and children. And the more you know about their relationship, the more open-minded you're going to be toward trying some of these wines that have been a little bit mystifying to you in the past. And so definitely, if you get an opportunity to take a deep dive, as I did, this last week into Bordeaux, I think you'll find yourself coming out with a much greater understanding of just how close the world, well, actually, just how close countries like ours and France really are. You see, the main thing is this. In the United States, we refer to wines based upon the varietal. So we'll call a wine a Cabernet Sauvignon or a Malbec or a Petit Verdot or a Zinfandel or whatever. In France, we refer to wines by the region. And so we'll call the wines Bordeaux or we'll call them Brown, not necessarily understanding that the name is just an overarching title that does not focus in on what the actual varietals are that make up those wines. So once we learn that factoid, we have this aha moment. It's a great feeling to finally put together just what the relationship is between the French Old World wines and the American New World wines. Now, granted, we make these wines in very different ways, and so they're going to show themselves in very different ways. But you might be surprised that you like the way that these French wines appeal to you versus the way maybe a wine made in California appeals to you or vice versa. The main thing is that you just understand what the relationship is. So we'll talk a little bit more about this in just a second. But today I also want to talk to you about the big game that's coming up as well as the most romantic holiday which is right around the corner. Lots of wine things to talk about as we continue with Grape Encounters Radio. So stay with me. Grape Encounters is brought to you by Total Wine and More. If you really want accurate descriptions of wine and what you taste, go see these awesome people at your Total Wine store because they're not going to buffalo you. They're going to give you information that you really can use because they're with these wines every day, all day, and they just understand them. And it's just a beautiful thing. If you don't know where there's a local Total Wine & More store, go to TotalWine.com. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters after this. Welcome back to Grape Encounters Radio, broadcasting from our Central Coast Wine Country studio in idyllic Atascadero, California. Grape Encounters is brought to you by Total Wine & More, America's largest independent retailer of fine wine. They carry more than 8,000 different wines from every wine-producing region in the world and offer an equally monumental selection of beer and spirits. 
Here's David. David Wilson back with Brave Encounters Radio. I've just returned from a trip from our nation's capital, and what a great time I had. I was the guest of Total Wine and More as they played host to the Union des Grands Crew de Bordeaux. Man, what an amazing selection of winemakers. I got to tell you, there were 80-plus producers there, and there were over 100 wines to taste. Actually, there had to be way more than 100. I tried to taste as many as I possibly could, but just frankly, it wasn't possible. I'm really glad I didn't have my recording equipment with me. That's a rarity for me because I always like to memorialize these kinds of events. But, you know, for the first time in a long time, I just got to be like everybody else and just enjoy it for what it was, which included a plethora of really, really great wines. I can honestly say there wasn't a stinker in the bunch. And then there was food and cheese to go along with it. I was a hog in heaven, that's for sure. And I met some of the most wonderful people. Now, one of the subjects that didn't actually come up during my conversation with a lot of the winemakers was this whole tariff thing. And it's been, you know, dominating the news for several months now. But everybody was in such great spirits. And, you know, frankly, the way I felt about it was this, that when I looked at the prices of some of these wines, even if you tacked a 100% tariff onto these wines, I still think they would be a really great bargain. So now would be a really good time to stock up on some of these Bordeaux wines before the tariffs hit because it looks like that's definitely going to happen. And uh, right now, the the prices have not been inflated. So this would be a good time to really get some of these into your portfolio. Anyway, lots of events like this take place all over the country. And if you get the opportunity to do something like this, by all means, do it. It's just a, a really, truly great opportunity to get a great education. Total Wine and More, because of the size of the organization, is sponsored to a lot of these kinds of events. So you might want to go to TotalWine.com, you know, sign up for their mailing list, and they'll keep you apprised of what's going on. Anyway, most of us are familiar with your basic Bordeaux wines, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Malbec, Petit Verdot, and so on. I really wanted to just mention some of the whites for a second because, you know, the one white that is the standout among the Bordeaux wines is Sauvignon Blanc. But one of the things that I tasted a lot of at this event was a blend of Sauvignon Blanc and Semignon. And this is such a great blend. And I can tell you, I never, ever see this blend in the States. I wish we would make more of it. It's, uh, you know, definitely something that you'll find in France, but not something that you will see so much in the U.S. So if you, you get an opportunity to taste those wines or purchase those wines, by all means, do it. Anyway, one of the things we're going to talk about in just a second is Valentine's Day. It's coming up. But before I talk about Valentine's Day, I'm going to talk about the big game. Now, we're not allowed to call it by what it is because of trademark laws. But you know what I mean when I say the big game, right? You know exactly what I'm talking about. But because of copyright laws and trademarks, we're not allowed to say it. I don't really understand that, actually, because you would think they would want us to mention what the big game really is. But anyway, go figure. Anyway, when it comes to the big game, we think of pairing football with beer. But, you know, in recent years, 
that has really changed in a very big way. I mean, after all, what self-respecting football fan would ever hold a beautiful crystal glass in their hands while they're pounding the other fist on the sofa, either because they're upset with their team or because they're just excited about a play that just happened? Well, here's the reality, folks. Wine is making huge, huge, and I mean huge, inroads into the world of football. I'm not kidding you. And you will absolutely be shocked at how many football players either still playing the game or who've retired from the game, football coaches, football team owners, etc. How many of these people have gotten into wine? And the really funny thing is, even though beer would seem to be the official drink of football, I couldn't find a single owner or player who is attaching their name to a beer. It's all about wine. Now, I could be wrong, but I couldn't find a single owner or player or manager Anybody that's making beer that's attached to football, but they're making wine. And if you think I'm talking about a few people, you'd be absolutely wrong because the number of people that are making wine that come out of the football world is absolutely astonishing. The number of football teams that have their own wines is simply astonishing. And I'm going to list a whole bunch of them in just a second. But I want to take you back to a story that involved me a few years ago. I was approached by a concessionaire that handled a bunch of stadiums in Texas, and they were familiar with Grape Encounters Radio. And what they wanted from me was they wanted me to create a Grape Encounters wine bar within one or more of these monster football stadiums, basically. Anyway, we negotiated for quite some time, and uh, the thing never happened. Okay, and, and I was very disappointed that it never happened. It, but the reality is we talked about it for a long time, and these guys were so excited about the possibility of bringing fine wine to football stadiums because their research told them that there was a very, very strong correlation between people who loved football and people who loved wine. And that as much as we think of beer as being the national beverage for football lovers, that's not necessarily the case after all. And a lot of people who love football love wine, too. And if you don't believe that, you're going to believe it in a second, because why else would so many players, why else would so many teams, why else would so many coaches and owners or former owners or football teams be getting into the wine game and not getting into the beer game? Now, I'll always believe that beer will always be a big part of football. No question about that. You know, football and beer, a great pairing, right? There's nothing more fun than sitting in the football stadium and drinking a 24-ounce beer that you paid 89 bucks for. But more and more people want wine. I don't know the reason why, but to be honest with you, but to be honest with you, this is a study that we'll endeavor to do here on Grape Encounters because right at the moment, I haven't got a clue. If you have any ideas about why so many football fans are digging wine over beer, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your theory, your analysis. Do a little color here for me. Wine versus beer where football is concerned. Anyway, I'm going to come back to this in just a sec. I'm going to tell you about all of the wine-associated football players and teams, etc., that are involved in wine these days. It's just crazy. It's mind-boggling, actually. It's head-spinning. 
So when we return with more Grape Encounters Radio, we're going to take a deep dive into wine and football. Who would have thunk it? Uh, Grape Encounters is brought to you by Total Wine and More. Before you tune in to what's going on on the gridiron, you want to take a stop at Total Wine and More because nobody can make the big game more fun than Total Wine. We are back with Grape Encounters Radio, and we are just, I guess it's less than two weeks away from the big game. I have to call it the big game because I can't call it by the S word because if I do that, I am violating copyright laws. I don't know why that is. You you would think that they would want us to say that word as much as we possibly can to you know publicize the event uh, even more than they already publicize it through their multi-gazillion dollar budgets. But be that as it may, um, I'm not going to use the S word. Uh, but I remember back about 12 years ago when I first started Grape Encounters, that was when I first started talking about the relationship between wine and football. And there were quite a few football players, and coaches, team owners that were starting to get into the wine game in addition to the football game, but it wasn't a huge list, and we could type it up on a, about a half a piece of paper and get through it in about 10 minutes, and that would be that. Well, today I will tell you that if I wanted to go into any great detail about wine and football, I would probably have to devote four or five shows to it because the popularity of wine among football players is just incredible. I, I've been compiling the list for quite some time, uh, I really want to thank Wine Spectator because uh, I found some additional information thanks to them that was not on my radar, so we'll incorporate that into this discussion here. I mean, consider this for a second. The the players and coaches and owners that got something going on where wine is concerned, one who's been in it since the 2007 vintage is Drew Bledsoe, the former New England's Patriot quarterback. He's actually got three labels, Bledsoe McDaniels, Bledsoe Family Wines and Doubleback Cellar. Uh, right now, his winery is in a new home in Walla Walla, Washington, making uh, the first wines for the 2018 vintage. He's also opened up another tasting room in Bend, Oregon. Uh, not California wines like most of the wines that are being made by guys in the football world, but Drew is making all kinds of interesting stuff. Willamette Valley Pinot Noirs, Washington Syrahs, pretty great wines. Uh, they get really excellent uh, reviews. Going down the list, uh, John Kent Cook, who is the former part-time owner and uh, president of the Washington Redskins, has a winery in Middleburg, Virginia, that focuses on on Bordeaux-style blends, and they planted their wines back in 2004. Um, Bloodsoe's been at it for a, a super long time. Uh, they purchased a, a farm in Middleburg, Virginia. His Boxwood Winery has 27 acres that are planted, and um, he continues to follow his old team, but uh, winemaking is definitely a passion for him. Also a passion for the former Denver Bronx quarterback, who's also the current president and GM, that's John Elway. I'm quite familiar with his Seven Cellars 
Wines, which is out of Rutherford, California. Their specialty is uh, Chardonnay and Cabernet Sauvignon. They partner with Robert Mondavi Jr. They're a fairly recent entry into winemaking, 2015 to be exact. And I've had a chance to try these wines. You should try them as well. By the way, guys who make the kind of money that these uh, football players make, uh, they don't have to cut corners, right? So they generally get pretty good talent to advise them. They make pretty awesome wine. Terry Hogue, uh, the former NFL safety, is making wines right here in my neck of the woods in Paso Robles, along with his wife, Jennifer. Uh, Their first vintage was 2002. Their grapes come from an area that I'm quite familiar with, the, the Willow Creek AVA. They have 26 acres planted in Syrah, Grenache, and Mouvedre, and a a few uh, white Rhone varietals. And Justin Smith of Saxon, which is a a great winery, is one of their early mentors. So they definitely went to the best of the best for advice. Let's see, uh, Lamar and uh, Norma Hunt, who were founders of the American Football League and the Kansas City Chiefs, got into the wine business in 2002. Unfortunately, Lamar passed away in 2006, so he didn't really get to enjoy the fruits of his labor as much as we certainly wish he would have been able to. But his wines are Kansas City Chiefs-themed, and um, the focus is the Knights Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. Dan Marino, a former NFL uh, quarterback, makes a wine called Passing Time. It is a Washington Cabernet-focused winery. Uh, They started in 2012. Did I mention that the, the wine is called Passing Time, or is it Passing time. I'm not sure. Rick Mirror, a former NFL quarterback, has Mirror Napa Valley. They also make Cabernet Sauvignon, Sauvignon Blancs, Chardonnay. His partner is uh, Kirk Vengay, and Kirk comes from a really dynamic wine family. His father is Niels Vengay. I've interviewed Niels. He is a real superstar, 100-point scoring winemaker, making some of the very, very, very best wines in the business. Moving on, uh, Carmen Policy, a former president of the San Francisco 49ers. He's been doing it, gosh, since 2003. A lot of the really hot restaurants in the San Francisco Bay Area sell his wines there. And we are told that Policy would head straight up to the Napa Valley after uh, parades in the 80s, 90s, uh, in the 80s and 90s um, after uh, the 49ers were in the Super Bowl. He'd, he'd head straight to Napa Valley and he would uh, celebrate being in the bowl, drinking great Napa wines out of a bowl. Dick Vermeil, he has been on the winemaking football coach list for a long time. His wines are called Vermeil wines. They are Napa and Sonoma Cabernets, Zinfandels and Chardonnays. They are absolutely wonderful and have been around since... Uh, the late 1990s. Uh, Charles Woodson, former Oakland Raiders cornerback, uh, has 24 by Charles Woodson. And uh, I think I got to jump into the teams for a second here because uh, I'm running out of time. Uh, first of all, the NFL by itself has a canned sparkling rose, red, and Pinot Grigio. The partner winery is Babe's Wine. Um, this last year was their first season. And it is a very hip wine in a can. And it's a very simple, cool-looking label, and apparently 
pretty decent. Uh, but Babe Wines uh, are available at home games for the Ravens, uh, the Raiders, the 49ers, the Patriots, the Giants, the Jets, the Redskins, the Falcons, the Panthers, the Dolphins, the Buccaneers, the Cardinals. Man, oh man, if you like it in a can, then Babe Wines is where you should stand. The other teams that have um, interesting affiliations with wine, the New York Giants, the Chicago Bears, the LA Rams are serving wines made by Woodbridge by Robert Mondavi. They started doing that in 2019 during this uh, current season. The wine being served is Cabernet Sauvignon in 2017. And you can find it, like I said, in the uh, Chicago, LA, and New York market. Uh, The Carolina Panthers are serving up uh, California Cabernet Sauvignon, marking their 25 years of existence in the NFL. Uh, The partner winery is Wine by Design. Just came out this last season. Uh, They say that these are for wine-loving fans of all levels. Isn't that nice? Available around the Carolinas at uh, wine retailers, available at uh, Bank of America Stadium, and so on. Uh, New York Jets. Wine is called Jets Uncorked. And why in the world would the New York Jets be serving a Napa Sonoma wine. It's uh, <laughs> Zinfandels, Merlot, Syrahs, Petite Syrahs from California. <laughs> Somebody's got to say something about that. By the way, the partner winemaker on that is Joe Wagner, and uh, he comes uh, from the very elite winemaking family that makes the Camus wines. These guys don't fool around. They make incredibly wonderful wines. And Joe's uh, uh, business is called Copper Cane. And he's responsible for some really iconic uh, uh, brands, including Bell Gloss and Bowen. And let's see, who else can I throw in here really super quick? Uh, Tennessee Titans uh, are uh, selling Chris Cameron's uh, Pasa Rubble's Broken Earth Winery Wines and Wine by Design. So that's, again, coming right out of my area. But because they don't make a lot of wine in Tennessee, by the way. <laughs> and then let's see uh, a couple of others. I got, I got, I'm running out of time. Dallas Cowboys. Uh, Josh Sellers. And um, the Cowboys joined forces with Josh Sellers. And these wines uh, are going to be available at AT&T Stadium and retailers throughout Texas and Oklahoma in the next season. Uh, Indiana Colts uh, have a Columbia Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. And then I think I'm going to end it with this. Here's a whole bunch at one time. San Francisco 49ers, Philadelphia Eagles, New Orleans Saints, New England Patriots, Kansas City Chiefs, Houston Texans, Green Bay Packers. These are mostly California Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot blends. They've got 15 months of aging on uh, American and French oak. And each team has a, a different set of designs etched into its bottles. And they commemorate championships and anniversary years. Uh, again, all California wines. So it doesn't matter what part of the country you're from. If there's one thing that uh, we can say for sure, the best football may be in other parts of the U.S., best wines seem to be from california okay we're going to come back and we're going to talk valentine's right after this okay we're 
We're in the fourth quarter of Grape Encounters Radio. We're going to jump off of the gridiron and into the heart-shaped hot tub as we talk about another event that's coming up very soon, uh, just uh, what two weeks, not even two weeks after the big game becomes the other big game where we compete for one another's heart. Yes, indeed, it is the occasion of hearts and one of the biggest wine-drinking occasions of them all, Valentine's Day. And I always like to talk about Valentine's Day where wine is concerned, not strictly from the perspective of you know telling you, gosh, you, you got to have some great wines and, and sparkling wines there to woo the one you love. Uh, that would be too easy. Uh, what I really like to talk about is the fact that there is some science involved in wine and Valentine's Day. And I try to pretty much every year remind you that it isn't just a matter of going out and finding a pretty bottle or finding the the perfect champagne or sparkling. But there is definitely some interesting case studies that you might be interested when it comes to Valentine's Day. And it has to do with just how do you fire up the romance on that most romantic of days and especially most romantic of evenings. One great big gigantic mistake that people make where Valentine's Day is concerned is in the area of overconsumption. And I don't mean drinking too much necessarily. I mean in general setting out to have a nice, wonderful, romantic evening to express your love for the person who is so near and dear to you, and then you overindulge in not just wine or spirits, but in calories, in food, in fat, in heaviness, too much chocolate, you know, meats that are too heavy. We get ourselves so full that all we want to do is slide into that lazy boy chair and unbutton a few buttons on our shirt to let our belly hang out because we can't fit anything more into it. That's not what Valentine's Day is supposed to be. My goodness, it's supposed to be where we show off our very best. We show restraint. We behave in a manner that is... Uh, incredibly gentlemanly like or or ladylike and we just show a little bit of class and, and so I always try to remind listeners that you should st- Probably steer away from a 16-ounce ribeye steak and a giant baked potato and a couple of appetizers, you know, some heavy dark chocolate dessert and lots and lots of uh, wine and spirits and whatever else to go with it because you're just going to, you know, blow yourself out and you're not going to have very much fun. On the other hand, um, one of the things that we've learned uh, as we study uh, especially the relationship between wine and love, is the fact that uh, there are certain wines out there that uh, can really do your, can get your um, your romantic engine churning and running like a race car. And so I want to remind you, if you've not heard me talk about this before, I want to remind you of some of the things that you should keep in mind when you go out and, and you, you buy wines for um, Valentine's Day. The first is this, is that wine can definitely have an impact on your libido and can make you feel a little more amorous if you, you know, choose the, the, the right wines. 
It's quite interesting uh, for men, ladies, this is for the ladies, men, you can cover your ears, but f- men get all charged up when they're they're drinking a great big red wine, leathery, sweaty kind of a wine. Uh, women, on the other hand, it's completely different. Women tend to find a couple of different wines exciting. Uh, the first, Rieslings, it, it's something that you don't think of very much, and I don't even talk about that much, but Rieslings tend to be wines that really, you know, fire up your love engine uh, pretty well uh, for women. Uh, so don't expect that big Cabernet or Syrah that your fella is drinking to have the same impact on you because it's, it's totally different. And it's just the way that we're wired, as I understand it. And there have been some interesting studies to support this. But Rieslings are especially old, musty Rieslings, you know, old world Rieslings, the kind that you would probably buy in Germany. I would say, you know, go buy. Go to your total wine store. Tell them you want a, a nice, old, musty German Riesling. They'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, now, ladies, you can buy that for yourself. Uh, just don't say why you're buying it, but you're just getting yourself in the mood right. Or gentlemen, you can you can buy that for the ladies. And and then as far as the men are concerned, if, uh, ladies, you're buying a bottle for your fella, you say, I want a big, strong, virile, intense red wine and uh, leathery, you know, sweaty. I know it sounds gross, you know, a sweaty wine. But in truth, a good wine consultant at a place like Total Wine, they're going to know exactly what you're talking about. They'll have their hands on the bottle before you can finish the sentence. That is for sure. And those are wines you want to look for. Now, a a very, very important option that is particularly appealing to the ladies, but I will tell you is desirable for both the men and the women is bubbly. And if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. Please get your head out of traditional bubbly thinking. Don't even worry about the C word, champagne. Okay, champagne is old news. Because we are making just in the U.S. alone, and I'm not talking about just California. I'm talking about you know places like New York making some scrumptiddlyumptious sparkling wines that are just so good, so delicious, and for a fraction of the cost that you would pay for a champagne. Now you probably know this, but the reason a champagne is called a champagne is because it because it, it comes from the Champagne region in France. That does not make it better. It, it it does mean that there's a better chance that on balance, if let's say you bought you know ten bottles from champagne that said champagne that that generally tend to be pretty good and it's not as risky business to do that. But there are just such tremendous sparkling wines that are coming from other parts of the world. And the thing that I really want to stress about this is Champagne is principally made from Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and some related grapes like Pinot Meunier. And if you don't like that flavor profile, you're you're never going to be in love with Champagne because look what it's made from. Anyway, listen, thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you want more Grape Encounters, go to grapeencounters.com. If you want to listen to our other podcast, which is a whole lot of fun, it's called The Wine is Talking. Go to thewineistalking.com. And um, if you need help beyond what I've been able to offer you here, by all means, go to our wonderful, incredible sponsor, Total Wine and More, because there is just a mountain of expertise in every single store.